Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast uh, coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee and joining us as always from Southampton, England, the jet lagged Dr. Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, are you okay this morning? I guess it's afternoon where you are. It's one hour. I was in the Netherlands this weekend playing at a Bonspiel. So (laughs) it's not jet lagged. It's a 55 minute flight and a one hour time flight. It's a 55 minute flight from the Netherlands to England? To Southampton. Yeah, of course. There's something like a little bit of water in between us, dude. I I always forget how close all the European countries are to each other. Whereas in America, if you want to go anywhere, it's at least a two hour flight just about. Yeah, no, we're in the air for 55 minutes. And this is a propeller plane, so it's wow. it's close. That's like going from Oklahoma City to Dallas. <laughs> yeah, well, you could probably – well, I mean, the problem is there's water in the way. So your, your choices are playing the train, the Euro Channel, which isn't direct, or the uh, ferry. So plane's the fastest, obviously, but it's probably closer than Dallas in terms of distance. What kind of was – was it a Dash 8? Yep. Oh yep. my gosh, a, I know those things scare the bejesus out of me because I know how old they are. They're old, and the problem is I tried to do it on a cheap, so I didn't like pay for any hold baggage. And so I had a backpack, and I, it's really small, squeezing my backpack with my curling gear into the baggage hold. But I just made it, so I was pretty happy. Man. Yeah, we had um, any time that I was going to Virginia Tech games back when I would fly from Oklahoma City, you basically have to take a dash eight to get from Charlotte to Roanoke. And I, I, my dad's a pilot, so I just know like how old and how not paid attention to the dash eights are. Like there was one time I flew flew into flew into Roanoke to go to a game and the plane I was on the AC was out and then a few days later when I came back it was the same plane and the AC was still out so it's obvious that maintenance was not um, a high priority on the dash eight no it's kind of, it's an old old school plane yeah <laughs> it's no the one that's good is Amsterdam airport is state of the art and you don't have to take your gels or liquids out anymore oh wow you just throw everything. They don't they're like we don't want your computer out. We don't want your liquids out. You know how like that all that rigmarole oh, takes yeah. like twenty minutes. It's yeah. like they're just like throw all your stuff in the thing, and then they make everyone go through one of those hands up scanners, and it's actually really fast. So oh, that's awesome. I like that. So that was good. But the dash eight, yeah, it's a bit slow. Yep. Our AC was out too <laughs> last night. I, I wonder if it was the same plane. <laughs> It probably was anyway. <laughs> from 2008. <laughs> yes, <laughs> probably is. All right, so you have been to Curling Night in America. I did. I drove down uh, on the 24th, so we're recording this on American Labor Day. Um, so last week, drove got up early in the morning, drove down to Raleigh. Spent the day down there, talked to a bunch of people, and uh, drove right back. Yeah, and so how, how is the, so you're not allowed to tell us the results? No, and honestly, the results aren't 
too important to what we were I was trying to accomplish down there and who I was trying to talk to. So yeah, there you'll find out what the results when uh, when the series airs on NBC Sports Network this winter. I will say the game. Have you gone to a bookie and placed any bets? I have not yet found a bookie willing to give me odds on curling night in America. <laughs> I'm just saying that'd be an easy way to pay for Fisher's college education. Man. It really would. To bet, to bet, yes, I would like. I would like to place a wager on the mixed doubles competition at Curling Night in America. <laughs> All right, so we can't talk results, but how was the event? Like, what was it like in terms of the staging? The like, what, what were your impressions in terms of it as an event to attend? It was pretty cool. I mean, everyone uh, obviously, it's not a super competitive thing so everyone was really laid back uh the crowds were good you know they set up temporary bleachers right next to the ice and those were full for all three um all three games that i saw great turnout um especially from charlotte curling club and atlanta curling club and obviously triangle curling club there in durham uh tons of people there from from those clubs and they were there having a good time and it's going to make for good tv because you had them really into the game so um i think it's going to that's really going to come through on the broadcast was how how good the crowd was and you were right there on the ice it was they you know it's not it's not a setup like a you know like you see on tv where it's an arena setup where you're kind of set a little bit away from the players you were extremely close like feet away uh from 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 the players so really good atmosphere um setup setup was really nice they did a good job of kind of making that place look good for tv and you know can't thank terry davis and rick patsky from usa curling enough for for their hospitality um terry was running around grabbing interviews for me, um, really helped me get the lay of the land really quick to help me do my job as efficiently as possible and really just went above and beyond the call. And, you know, some people will say, well, it's USA curling. They want the coverage, you know, what, what, what were you expecting? But I can tell you, Jonathan, I have dealt with a lot smaller organizations that were a lot less accommodating. So it's not something like, to be expected. They did, they did a great job and they did a great job hosting everybody there. And it's nice they would do it for a podcast, which is obviously new media and we're not, uh, we're not NBC sports, <laughs> obviously. No. So I think, I think, I think Terry's all, because I just know Terry from my board days. She's always been very forward thinking. I think USA curling does a fantastic job on the social media front. Um, they're kind of a scrappy organization because they have to be. They know that they, they, whatever they can do to get attention, they're going to do it. And I think USA Curling for years has really been, at least in the curling world, on the forefront of using social media to kind of leverage attention for the sport in the U.S. So glad they would help us podcast out. Yes. So after you came back, basically the day after, there was a bit of breaking news that uh, Rick Patsky is stepping down as CEO of – USA curling. So uh, you, you, one of your first interviews was with, was with Rick Patsky. So maybe we'll uh, do that interview first, play the clip from that interview, and then we can talk a little bit about Rick afterwards. Yeah. And so this came down, I think Monday or Tuesday, and this interview was done on Saturday. So it may be one of the last 
interviews that Rick gave as CEO of USA Curling. And if he, I'll tell you what, there was, he had a pretty strong poker face if he knew that, uh, that this was going to be happening. Cause I, I got no inclination that, uh, any change was on the horizon from anybody. So that was really interesting. So let's get into it. Here is my interview with Rick Patsky. We talk about USA Curling's relationship with the TV networks. We talk about a new event that's going to air this spring during the NHL playoffs uh, that USA Curling uh, taped while we were down there in Raleigh, um, and kind of the what he sees as the the future of USA Curling, which is kind of weird to talk about now uh, now after the events of last week. So here's uh, the interview with Rick. All right, we are here in Raleigh with Rick Patsky. Am I saying that right? Yes, sir. Rick Patsky, CEO of USA Curling. And can you just give us uh, just kind of the background on how Curling Night in America came to Raleigh, North Carolina? Sure, Ryan. So there's a Triangle Sports Commission here in Raleigh, and a gentleman by the name of Hill Carroll, who I've known for a number of years. They actually bid on our Olympic trials in uh, 2018. And didn't end up getting them, but it was a start of kind of a relationship, like how can we get some major curling events here. So this property, this Curling Night in America, is kind of a road show, and uh, the timing of the year makes it a little more feasible to get in ice, you know, hockey venues and that sort of thing. Um, Hill's company, organization, I guess, and the people that he knows uh, brought it all together and put together a great bid, and here we are. Um. In addition to Curling Night in America, you've got something special cooked up that you guys are uh, going to have tomorrow here. Uh, tell us a little bit about that event because it just sounds like it's going to be great TV, honestly. Yeah, so NBC Sports came to us um, with an idea of trying to get curlers and hockey players and NHL commentators on the ice together. And the premise is that they want to build, um, produce some shows that they can put on after Stanley Cup playoffs next year, so mm-hmm. you're not going to see this for a bit, but it's mainly to, to retain the audience and have a little fun, um, both with the hockey and the curling. Uh, so we have three NHL professionals here. We have um, two women's hockey stars, U.S. women's hockey stars, and then we have a number of commentators from NBC, and then we have eight of our curlers, four men and four women. They're... Uh, Two team or four teams of four, with two men and two women on each team, and we're just basically going to have two semifinals and a final, and have a great time, uh, including Jeremy Roenick, who looked like he was holding his own when they were doing uh, practice here earlier today. Uh, who who impressed you watching them uh, get ready for tomorrow? You know he did quite well. I, I would say all of them did, and they had quite the instructors out there. They've got Kevin Martin as well as Tyler George and our women's team and a number of others that. Um, jumped in and helped. It it was fantastic. So we have a new sponsor in Goldline Curling Supplies, and they stepped up when I said, look, we're going to do this event. We want to make these people comfortable and make them look good. So they have all got really nice shoes and, and uh, pants and gloves and brooms and everything, so they're fully kitted up. I think that actually gives them a little bit of more of a comfort and confidence on the ice that, you know, curling shoes versus a step-on slider make a big difference. Um, they must have all been comfortable enough that all but one did not come back for the second practice. So uh, I give credit to Tanith White for pushing hard out there. She's looking really good, too. 
What uh, what role do you think TV plays in the overall growth and development of sport in the of the sport in the U.S.? Yeah, that's an easy one, Ryan. It's huge because the the sport's been in the U.S. since 1830, somewhere in there, and largely was um, obscure when NBC got the broadcast rights with the 2002 Olympic Games and decided that they were actually going to put more than 30 minutes of curling on television. That was kind of a coming out party for the sport. So we went from, you know, about a half hour of coverage in the 98 games in Nagano to uh, 52 hours, I believe, on NBC to where they were even calling MSNBC must show nothing but curling. Mm-hmm. And from there, it's um, really exploded across the country, both in participation, um, number of clubs and locations. I mean, we're in all but five states, I believe, right now and uh, continue to expand the TV coverage. Is it, tell me about how those, how those conversations are. Is it, is, it, is it a lot easier for you now to ask NBC for, for more coverage now that we have the Olympic gold medal team um, wearing red, white, and blue? That certainly helped and probably was a, um, a catalyst for this Sticks and Stones event with the NHL because not all sports are going to carry an audience when they're not live. Um, you know, we're talking about producing this in August and it's not going to hit the air until like next May or June, somewhere in there, but it will attract an audience. So um, NBC's just been a great partner in all of this. They've expanded their World Curling Federation coverage. You mentioned the World Series or the World cup we were talking about earlier you know, I think during the Olympic year they put on over 600 hours of television U.S. television so that is the number one driver of the sport in the U.S. Uh, what, what's kind of the next step for you guys in terms of TV coverage what's the next thing that you would like to see um, in terms of TV coverage here in the U.S.? We'd like to continue to expand so we've with NBC's help and World Curling Federation we've kind of created a season so this, this nine-program series helps, and that'll be on January to March. Um, prior to this, when they had the World Cup, you know, we were kind of starting in December, that sort of thing. So what we'd like to do is, is set a consistent season. We'd like to get our national championships and uh, mixed doubles championships on television, even if it's just starting with kind of the playoffs. So kind of to continue to build that out and try to keep a season of coverage that uh, – carries through the, the four-year cycle of the Olympics is, you know, we'll have some Olympic trials coming up in 21, which will help carry that season longer. But um, we just want curling to not disappear between every Olympic Games, and so far we've been able to do that. I realize it's tough because it's not a USA curling property, it's not a WCF property, but is there ever going to be a time where maybe some of those bigger spiels like the, the Grand Slams wind up on, on U.S. television? Yeah, there's actually interest, and there have been conversations you know, between NBC and the, um, TSN and some of the other partners in Canada, so that's, as you mentioned, not in our Valley Wick, but they, um, they have interest, and you know, with the number of channels out there on television nowadays i'm sure there's a home for it um turning now to just a little bit on grassroots before we get out of here how what what effect has the gold medal had on the uh, the high performance program and then on on grassroots here in the u.s so on the high performance program side i think i mean it's a 
it's a um, high water mark of a lot of hard work. I mean, going back decades, mm -hmm. certainly before I had any involvement here, but it's certainly legitimizing what everybody's putting into from the sports science side, the fitness, nutrition, and all the other things, and mental skills training that go into it. So when we see younger athletes coming into the programs now, like we have a, a junior program that's 21 and under, then we have a development pool program that's kind of the 16 to 18, and this year we're starting a U14 kind of jamboree, not a competitive so much, but as a development. Um, these people are coming in already knowing the expectation is that they're paying attention to fitness and conditioning and their coaching and everything else. So I think that it will continue to help achieve one of our two missions, which is long-term uh, sustained competitive success. Uh, your other question was what on growth? Yeah, on, on, on grassroots, what, what effect have you seen in grassroots? And then more, more importantly, how do, we, how do we maintain the momentum as, as a curling country? How do we not let, let, let this gold medal kind of slip away, basically? Sure. So the, you know, we're small potatoes still when you look at it with about 26,000 members in a country of 330 million. So we know that there's opportunity for growth, but... The um, number of clubs continues to expand. Probably one of the markers I'm seeing is, is private business development interest in creating their own curling facilities where, uh, you know, use the bowling lane example. So the curling clubs would be a customer of the facility, the center, not necessarily the ones that found it, that sort of thing. And that's in numerous cities in the country right now. So I think that's a good marker of where the sport can continue to grow. Um, the television, we need to definitely maintain the television and the digital side of things too. And um, the, the competitive success sort of glues all this together. Does, does the health of the game in Canada and seeing some of those curling clubs close worry you at all? Because Canada is where the money for this sport is. And if it's not healthy there, it's really not healthy worldwide in my opinion does it does it concern you at all what might be happening there because we're growing like you cannot believe but to see that happening in the place where the money is seems kind of concerning yeah and i'm not um, wise enough to tell you that that's only where the money is but i know that the opportunities you know we're seeing new sponsors coming on board here like jaegermeister and a number of other conversations certainly toyota multi-year deal is key for us and not just for the olympic side but also the paralympic programs that we have um, we're seeing tremendous growth in China and uh, some of the other Asian countries and things. You know, Brazil's going to be a force in curling, believe it or not, um, soon. Mexico, same thing. They have their first dedicated curling coming along. So we certainly don't want to see Canada falter. Um, I have no idea. I'm not, not uh, like somebody that would go in and tell them, gee, this is what you need to do. Um, they certainly have their own solutions that they're working on, I'm sure, but... The sport needs to stay strong there because that's a lot of the fan base, as we know, and a lot of the participation. But I wouldn't say that the world of curling is totally dependent on Canada these days. Uh, and then just finally, what, what do you see kind of the future of, of USA curling being? Kind of what, what do the next four years look like uh, to you for USA curling? Well, we've got some great upcoming host cities. Uh, we're going to announce probably later tonight that uh, Irvine, California will be hosting this curling night in America next year as well as our mixed doubles Olympic trials in 21 
are going to take the men's and women's Olympic trials back to Omaha, which was a great success the last time around, and they're certainly going to up the ante. Mm-hmm. Um, we have this charity event that we do in Hawaii every year that's continuing strong. I think this will be our seventh year there. And I uh, mentioned some of the sponsors and partners we have, so we're trying to keep the game and the support behind the game growing and healthy and help our members succeed through televising and promotion so that they can continue more people in their doors. So I think the future is quite bright. Yeah, I love seeing this event in Raleigh. Arena championships are going to Wyoming. The The national championships are going to Iowa. I, I like seeing that you guys are, are expanding expanding your horizons on, on hosting, and I hope that uh, we'll see another event here in, well, close by to where I can drive to uh, sometime soon. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us. Thanks, Ryan. It was a pleasure. And uh, one of the things yet on my bucket list is to have a major championship in Hawaii. So maybe we can see you there, too. Uh, I'd love it. All right, Jonathan. So you know Rick from your days on the USA Curling Board. Just give us some background on him and what he was like to work with. uh, And were you surprised by everything that came down last week? Uh, so yeah, no, I knew Rick's been with USA Curling for, I think, 20 years, maybe even 20 plus years. He started off initially as their media person and eventually, uh, was under the old role of role as kind of director of USA Curling, I believe is the title. When I was on the board, um, I kind of, I was sort of on the board from 2010 to 2013 till when I kind of moved to the U S and that was a big time, of transition with USA curling. And so the big kind of debate going on when I was on the board was uh, we're kind of restructuring the bylaws and the U S Olympic committee really wanted USA curling to move to a model of like a, a board of governors. That's a bit more kind of uh, directing and not managing and or governing the sport, if you will, and then appointing a CEO who Rick was the first CEO in that instance, who would basically run the organization on the day-to-day basis and then be accountable to the board. So Rick kind of went through, brought the USA curling from a pretty small time operation. Like when I got to the U S in 2010, probably the number of curlers in the U S was under 10,000. Right, you had under maybe you had a hundred curling clubs, and they were basically concentrated in New England and the Upper Midwest, and that was about it. With a handful of arena clubs, and it really they talked about in the interview. Really, it was two thousand two, and and curling getting on TV that started to kind of prompt growth. And to my mind, the kind of two real big breakout Olympics were twenty ten. That just because the Olympics were in. A North American time zone, you had a lot more curling live on, on TV in the U.S., and that really drove member numbers up. So around that time, the number, number, membership numbers were around 14,000. And then uh, I'm not sure where they're at now. They've got to be north of 25,000, right? Yeah, he said 26 uh, during the interview. So 26 post-2018 after an Olympic bump. So they've almost doubled in a decade again. <laughs> so... He's taken, as kind of the leader of USA Curling, he's taken the sport from less than 10,000 members to close to 30. So almost tripled it over his 18 or 19 years leading the organization. So that's no small feat. And then on the competitive ed side of things, uh, he he, kind of made a lot of changes on that front too. And certainly that's been controversial along the way. Like anyone who follows USA Curling closely knows that there's been lots of 
debate online and on social media about the high performance program and selection camps and, you know, John Schuster not making the cut in, in 2014 and then putting together his kind of team of rejects that ended up winning the gold medal. But the flip side of it is, is that to be honest, when I got there, the competitive side of curling in the US wasn't that competitive. Certainly, you know, early 2000s US curling was not anywhere where it is today in terms of the fitness and training program, the competitive circuit that the teams play on. So there certainly has been a lot of growth on the competitive end, end too. And we've certainly seen that with the gold medal. But I think that the more interesting development's been the good results in the junior programs over the last few years. It, uh, for a while, in the early 2000s, USA Curling was actually playing in the B pool, you know, in the World Junior Bs. And over the last few kind of years, their teams have been kind of, you know, medal contenders and juniors. And I think often a country's, the strength of a country's junior program kind of is a good indicator of where that program's going to go uh, for Worlds and, and Olympic cycle, say in like six to 10 years time. So there's a lot of groundwork that's been laid for kind of what I'd say sustained curling excellence during uh, Rick's um, run. I don't think either of us have heard anything about the why for the parting of the way. So, you know, uh, we don't, we, we can only speculate on that. That's not kind of really fair, but regardless of why the relationship kind of came to an end, it's kind of, if anyone who's learning a history of curling in the U S is going to have to include Rick Patsky in that story. Cause the games has grown so much, uh, during his leadership phase. And Jonathan, I can tell you from experience that that is a truly thankless and very difficult task when you're trying, when you're kind of tasked with taking an organization from adolescence to adulthood. I was the PR director for a nonprofit organization, and we brought in a new, um, you know, a new a new uh, development director, and she and I were kind of working together to, you know, bring in funding for this nonprofit. And it was kind of considered a mom and pop board. We had a board of directors that it was the same people had been there for since the beginning of the foundation. There wasn't a lot of turnover on the board. You didn't have, you know, you didn't have president, past president, et cetera, et cetera. You didn't have people rotating off the board. So it wasn't considered a professional board. And that really kept us from getting some of the grants that we were trying to get because they wanted us to have a professional board and rules laid out. You know, we weren't um, we weren't playing by the same set of rules that all these other nonprofits were. So we were being denied some funding. And it sounds, based on your description, that's kind of what happened with USA Curling. Was they were this this I don't want to say mom not mom and pop from a negative standpoint, but a mom and pop um, kind of organization. And that's really what curling is at its heart. But with the Olympics this sport has had to grow up and it sounds like Rick was the one that had to see it through adolescence into adulthood. Yeah. That's actually exactly uh, the United States Olympic committee's point, right? And they actually, they actually said it's nothing unique about us curling. Their point was that most of the sports that are kind of under the Olympic movement umbrella are amateur sports. And most of the national governing bodies, at least initially their boards are populated by people who are, volunteers who kind of came up through the grassroots, but they're also kind of doing it on a volunteer basis. And 
um, you know, the Olympics change a lot of things. And if you want to win at the Olympics and the U.S. United States Olympic Committee, you know, they'll, they'll say they care about all these other things. But at the end of the day, it really is about winning medals. Then you need what they call the professionally run board. And uh, Rick kind of oversaw that transition. And um, it's a tough transition for any organization to make, like the nonprofit you were talking about, but also the, the kind of USA current transition too, but the board has been restructured. They've brought in a lot of good people kind of on the current board. And I've heard from, from kind of friends from my time on the board that I've spoken to, they've all said that things are a lot better now, that the, the board's running a lot more smoothly. It's a lot smaller. They had to streamline the board and they, they have term limits. So people aren't kind of on the board for life. And they try to select, um, you know, members based on skills and talents, not simply kind of having been around a curling club for a long time. So uh, I think there's, there's, you know, a lot of a lot of changes have happened over those those twenty years that Rick's been with uh, USA Curling. And I think if you kind of looked at where curling was in say ninety nine two thousand to where it is today in the U.S., uh, a lot of that is thanks to the work that that Rick's put into it. Yeah, so we thank him for taking the time to sit down with me. He was very accommodating. He even helped find a spot there in that rink that was a little bit quieter as one of the draws was getting ready to start when he had time to sit down with me. And obviously thank him for being as forthcoming as he was. He made a, If you listened closely, he made a couple of announcements in there that I don't think have been made official yet by USA Curling. Uh, and then also being very honest about uh, some of the talks that have happened behind the scenes. You know, he mentioned there um, that little carrot that maybe one of these days will get some of those Grand Slam uh, events on USA television, on US television, which would be excellent. So Huge thanks to Rick, and I mean, he had never met me before that night, so for him to be as accommodating and forthcoming with someone who he had just met, it, you know, kind of speaks to his integrity, I think. Yeah, and so who did you grab next? So did you actually get to talk to some athletes, too? I did. So we'll... Rick was actually one of the last P I think the last person that I talked to that night. Uh, we talked just as the last draw was getting underway. Uh, so the, one of the, the first couple people that I talked to were Corey Christensen and Sarah Anderson from the U S high performance program. And they are now teammates on team Jamie Sinclair. And just to give you a little bit of behind the scenes, this was probably my first time putting on my journalism hat since the 2015 Oklahoma football season. So I was a little bit rusty. So you'll kind of see that with the first two interviews I got, which were Corey and Sarah. Uh, for one, it was my first time doing a full interview like this in a while. So they're kind of shorter. Uh, and two, I was tired. I had gotten up early that morning. I had not had nearly enough coffee uh, by the time that I got to Raleigh. So We'll talk to them. Uh, we talk a little bit about mixed doubles with both of them. Sarah on one of the better mixed doubles teams in the U.S. with Corey Dropkin, and they competed together at Curling Night in America. And Corey Christensen, who's coming off a bronze medal at Worlds with John Schuster. So we will start with Corey Christensen. And then we'll talk to Sarah Anderson. You'll hear about mixed doubles. You'll hear about this new team they have with Corey and Vicky Persinger joining team Jamie Sinclair this year. So let's uh, get to those two interviews.
All right, we are joined by Corey Christensen of Team Sinclair. Is that, uh, are you getting used to saying that? <laughs> I am, I guess, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's new, but, but it's exciting, yeah. So tell us how this team came about. What was, uh, you know, was it something that you reached out to Jamie, she reached out to you, or did USA Curling kind of ask if you guys would curl together? How did this team uh, start up? Yeah, so I, our high-performance program kind of um, helps us form teams, but um, I think Jamie Jamie called me first and asked if, you know, maybe we should stop playing against each other and start playing with each other, um, and I was really excited for that opportunity. I have so much respect for Jamie as a skip, and she's just a, a natural leader out on the ice, so I thought that it would be a great fit, and um, and I played with Vicky last year, so I love playing with her, and then also I played with the Andersons for numerous years and juniors, so I thought that it would just be, you know, a great team. Was it a hard decision, or was the fact that you had played with all these players kind of make it easy for you? Yeah, no, it was a really easy decision. I mean, I'm so excited about this team because, um, I mean, it's just so many great players. So it was a very easy decision. How are the team dynamics coming along? Is it Has it been an easy transition for you? Or, you know, what also, what's it like playing third now? Yeah, it's definitely a little different, but I, th- I think that it's coming along really nicely, a little quicker than I was anticipating, actually. Um, I really like playing third, kind of get to do a little bit of everything. And like I said, we've all kind of played together already. Um, or each So Jamie's played with, with Vicky and the Andersons before, so it's it's been a pretty easy transition. So... What's the transition been like for you um, going from juniors to now playing full-time women's? How how has your game kind of developed as it's gone along here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's been a little bit of an adjustment, but... um you know, we've we we're lucky to be able to travel a lot and go on tour a lot and play against really good teams. So, um, just getting that experience, I think we just get better and better every year. Is this your first time playing in this event here at Curling Night in America? Um, I subbed with Nina's Ross, Nina, Nina Ross team a couple of years ago, but my first time actually playing the whole time. Yeah, and it's such a fun event. Um, how does it kind of work into your preparation for the season? Obviously, it's the first big event of the kind of big event of the year where you're, you know, doing more than just practicing, uh, practicing alone in a curling club. Yeah. Um, how has it kind of worked into you guys' development and preparation? Yeah, it's kind of funny because we haven't really been on the ice a whole lot, and this is our first event, which is on national TV, so um, it's different, but... Um, but it's a it's a really fun first event to play in. Just kind of get our feet underneath us, and and we're playing really well. Um, so I think that moving forward throughout the season, this is just a really great fun event to start off with. And it's in Raleigh, North Carolina. Did when you were starting in juniors, did you ever think that you would be playing in a big event mm-hmm. in Raleigh, North Carolina? No, not at all. But I love to see the growth of the sport in the South. Um, we spent a couple of days down in Charlotte before we came up to Raleigh, and I was just blown away by the excitement around the sport. And there's a whole group of people from Charlotte here watching us, and the stands have been filled every game. So I think it's really great to have that exposure in other parts of the country than what we're used to. How have you seen the sport grow since you started here in the U.S.? What have, what have you noticed has been the biggest difference between, uh, between how curling was in the U.S. when you started and today? Yeah, I mean, I used to tell people that I curled and they had no idea what it was. And now everybody knows what it was. Everybody, everybody knows what it is. And a lot of people know about um, John Schuster and his team winning the gold medal. That was obviously a huge push for us. And, um, and it's just it's growing so much and it's exciting to be a part of and kind of see that evolve. Um, 
What are, what, are, what are some of the things that you have done um, kind of on the development side? Have you worked in clinics? Have you uh, been asked to come in and, and teach juniors now, now that you've transitioned over into the women's game? What are some of the things that you've kind of been involved with that you've seen at the grassroots level? Yeah, um, like I said, we were down in Charlotte, and we did a couple of one-on-one clinics. And then I always like to go back to my home club in Duluth and work with the junior program there because that's where I started off, and that's, um, that's you know, how how the excitement gets in with the kids and um, and grows from there. So I definitely like to get involved and help out as much as I can. Hey! <laughs> that was Tyler George. <laughs> um, and then I guess, uh, just what's, what are your personal goals for the year? You know, it's the be- beginning of the year, new team, what are you kind of focusing on as you get started into the season? Yeah, I think definitely just getting comfortable in my position, um, learning everybody's team roles and kind of working that communication. Um, and also our, our end of the year goal is to obviously win nationals and um, hopefully medal at Worlds. Um, but yeah, I think just taking it one step at a time and be really being really patient with it as this is a new team. But um, yeah. And then personal work-life balance and curling, um, is that, has that been a learning process for you as well, or how's that working out? Yeah, I was actually able to graduate college last May, so that was pretty exciting because it's been a long <laughs> work in progress. Um, but yeah, we travel so much that it's it's pretty hard for us to hold down full-time jobs. Um, Vicki has a full-time job, but she's able to work on the road, um, and the rest of us just kind of keep part-time part-time jobs and we're really lucky to have some employers that are really good to us and give us the time off that we need but really our main focus is on curling so that was one of the things I was going to ask about watching mixed doubles last year after you and John won I think I remember you (laughs) screaming something like I'm (laughs) going to fail out of school yep so you didn't (laughs) I really thought that I was going to but I survived yes (laughs) and then I guess just uh to end up you know splitting time between four person and mixed doubles um how is how how do you kind of approach working in mixed doubles in addition to your four ten, four person team? Yeah, John and I um, kind of like to focus more on my, our men and women men's and women's teams. That's definitely our number one focus. But every chance we get to play mixed doubles together, we obviously jump at that. So it was really great to be at the World Championships together and get a lot of really good games in together. That was great experience for us. Um, but John and I practice together a lot, so I think that when we do get on the ice playing mixed doubles together, we. We just pick right back up from where we were, and um, we only, we'll only we probably only get in about three events this year together and more like 10 to 12 with our men's and women's teams. But, yeah, we try to play as much as we can because, uh, yeah, we have a lot of fun with it. Uh, last question, what did that world's experience mean to you? And like, had, Does that make you a lot hungrier to mm-hmm. get back there either in four-person and in mixed doubles? What was that experience yeah, like? For sure. I mean, that was my first time competing at a non-junior world, so um, it was just great to be at that level, and and also having 48 teams there from all different nations, it was just so cool to see so many different countries competing, um, but yeah, definitely getting the bronze medal makes me really hungry to go back and, and get another medal. All right, thank you, good luck this year. Thank you. All right, we are at Curling Night in America in Raleigh, North Carolina, and we have Sarah Anderson of Team Sinclair and her mixed doubles team with Corey Dropkin. And this event, you're kind of focusing on mixed doubles. Is it a little weird to have to keep an eye on your four-person team while focusing on mixed doubles? Yeah, it is odd being on a different sheet than them, but I love playing mixed doubles, but I also really like supporting my women's team, so it's kind of a win-win. Have you seen in your 
for curling for you, have you seen it kind of switch more toward mixed doubles, or are you still trying to focus on that four-person women's team and then mixing in the mixed doubles whenever you get a chance? Exactly. I think Corey and I both play on competitive men's and women's teams, um, so those that's our main priority, but then we also get to fit in you know, mixed doubles feels whenever we can and have a lot of fun doing it. How much has the way that that aspect of the sport has grown and now that it's included in the Olympics, how has that changed your mindset toward playing mixed doubles? Yeah, your last point there about it being a new discipline in the Olympics not only has encouraged Corey and I to, you know, take it quite seriously, but also every country in the world that plays curling. You can see it on the world stage um, at Mixed Doubles Worlds. Um, The strategy has changed, the accuracy has gone up, and more countries are putting a lot of more uh, resources into it, and it's helped the game grow. Um, has made it better and more spiels around the world for it. So it's an awesome improvement. How has the strategy changed? Um, So people are trying new things because, of course, mixed doubles, obviously, you're all throwing towards the center. So teams have changed to maybe how to bring play um, uh, to the sides a bit more, uh, taking the center guard, Um, but also the power play, people are playing that a bit differently um, and definitely playing around with some things, and everyone's trying to, like, you know, push the envelope on what they can do. How do you, I mean, how do you work in training and how do you work in practice? Uh, How do you split the time there between the two teams? So I think I mainly practice my women's team, uh, those certain certain drills we do. Um, Then when I have a mixed doubles tournament coming up, I might focus a little bit more on uh, some mixed doubles strategy, watch some mixed doubles games, uh, you know, film, and then also maybe just play some mixed doubles against my sister or whoever is around the club uh, just to get my mindset back back into mixed doubles. Talking about your four-person team, a little bit of a change this year. You're bringing in a player that you're familiar with, with Corey. Um, how's that dynamic working out so far? How was the summer for you guys? Yeah, so we're actually bringing Corey and Vicky on new this year. Uh, Vicky did play Worlds with us last season. Um, and, you know, we have five really dedicated girls, and we've put a lot of training in this summer. We've had multiple training camps, you know, trying to build uh, the team dynamics on and off the ice. So we're really excited for the season. We've seen mixed doubles grow, and we've also seen the five rock rule. What I've noticed is in a lot of competitive four-person tournaments that play is getting drawn more to the center. Do you think that that's more of a mixed doubles thing and people are used to playing with more rocks in the center, or do you think it's because of five rock? I think it's because of the five rock rule, Um, and I think uh, teams are getting a lot better at the runbacks and double peels, so you're going to see a lot more play in the center. People are being more aggressive. Um, just because of the five rock roll, you're going to see more rocks in play. And then uh, what's the future for you guys? Like what's your, uh, what's, what are your team goals coming into this season? And then what are your personal goals uh, for yourself? So I think team goals is uh, mixed doubles or women? Uh, let's do both. Okay. So for mixed doubles, we're playing in three more spiels before nationals. Um, and two of those spiels are qualifying events for nationals. So we're hoping to win either one of those so we get our spot and hopefully you know, win nationals and represent uh, the United States at Worlds um, and maybe be on the podium there. And then I'd say the same with the women's team. You know, we're playing in a lot of events this year, hopefully get some uh, wins or qualifications and you know, get that chance to represent the United States there at Worlds again. Uh, what do you think of Raleigh, and what do you think of this event coming to a, a, a non-traditional curling spot, and is that something you think they should do more with this particular event? 
Yeah, I think it's amazing that, you know, curling's branching out, especially in the south. Um, my team got a chance to go down to Charlotte Curling Club before the event started, and it was amazing to see how curling's growing in the south. And I think the more times we have events like this that travel to maybe not your typical curling area is going to help grow the sport, and I think it's absolutely fantastic. People are so welcoming here, and, and we love it. All right, thank you, and good luck this year. Thank you so much. Jonathan, this is going to be probably the most interesting team in the U.S. high-performance program this year to me because Team Sinclair is coming off of winning U.S. Nationals and almost making playoffs at Worlds. But then they make these changes, bring in a skip of the team that finished third last year, Corey Christensen, as well as Vicky Persinger, who has played with Jamie and was on the team that uh, won the Players' Championship a couple years ago. But they're also also they're losing a couple of players that were key components, including Monica Walker, who I thought was the best lead in the U.S. program, who is no longer on this team. So big changes. I thought Sarah Anderson did really well as a third last year. Um, she also impressed a bunch of people, including the TSN crew during the Continental Cup when she got to play with Jennifer Jones, just her composure and her ability to, to compete on that stage. And then having to work in Corey at third, which is a change for her. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering how this team will be at the beginning and what this team will, will be at the end of the season. Yeah, I think I think it'll be an interesting interesting year for Team Sinclair. They had a pretty good season last year. Probably Nina Roth had better results in the slams, but Team Sinclair ended up winning uh, U.S. Nationals comfortably. And if it wasn't for the unfortunate kind of injury to Jamie at the Worlds last year, at the last at the worst possible moment, the good chance they would have made the the medal round too. So. Adding, adding a new set of players to the mix, although some that they've kind of played with uh, before, I think at least on paper makes this team a little bit stronger. But as we've seen kind of teams on paper that kind of look really great often take a little time to gel. So they may not kind of come firing out of the gate uh, as the best team in the U.S., at least for the autumn part of the season. But I certainly would expect them to be the favorite to win U.S. Nationals again this year and certainly a threat for the medal round at the World Championships in, in March. Yeah, Jamie has kind of had Nina Roth's number head-to-head lately, and so it'll be interesting to see if that changes now that you have new players, this new working new players onto Team Sinclair, and then Team Roth, I think, kind of stayed the same. You know, so you have the, you know, the the dichotomy there between adding adding another skip to try and improve your team versus the team that's kind of staying the course and has has the experience together. Yeah, so I, I predict that Nina would have probably a stronger start to the season again. Uh, you know, and you never know when it comes down to fine. It's not like Nina Roth has no shot of winning U.S. Nationals. Like certainly, I mean, they were the Olympic team. Uh, Exactly. It's not like it's not like would be the biggest shock, right, for them to to win. But I think that, you know, there certainly is. Since Jamie's won the slam, Jamie's team has won the slam. I think they've kind of been seen as the the team of the future for USA curling for the last couple of seasons. And so perhaps this is their breakout year where they not just win U.S. Nationals, but maybe win another slam or certainly contend, go to kind of playoff round in the slams a bit more regularly 
and uh, you know, post a medal result when it comes to the World Championships in March. And then the depth of the mixed doubles program for the U.S. has kind of shown through when you have Corey Christensen and John Schuster. I don't want to. I don't want to say just kind of showing up and winning U.S. nationals, but you know they weren't considered. I think one of the favorites going into that tournament, and then for them to win and then go win a bronze at Worlds was pretty impressive. Yeah, I think I think last year, let's put it this way: before last season, the mixed doubles world, the, there's a debate right between are teams that are specialists better situated to win medals than teams that are shooters, right? And so. The John Morris Caitlin Laws theory is just get two really good players, put them together, form them in a tournament, and hope they win. And they they worked kind of brilliantly for them. But the you know the Perret and Rios team from Switzerland kind of took the other path of we're going to be mixed doubles first, uh, training really hard, playing a lot of events over the cycle, and they got the silver. Uh, I think after last year where we saw. You know, Oscar Peterson and Hasselberg essentially just kind of team up, drop in and win. And then uh, John Schuster, Corey Christensen show up and also medal. The, the the kind of high performance program approach is starting to shift more towards we're just going to drop our best shooters into mixed doubles at the end of the season and, and try to win the medals that way. So, you know, I think, uh, I think that's kind of the USA curling's gut depth on that side of the program. So we'll see, we'll see, you know, again, who comes out of the U.S. Uh, trials. I guess they'll be running those in what? Is it March after everything else is decided? Yeah, I think it's Yeah, so it'll be after the regular nationals. And I think this year matters for all three Olympic disciplines because this is the year we start kind of taking points exactly. for these events, right? And so it's the, the best points over the next two world championships decides Olympic births. The good news is mixed doubles expanded to 10. So there'll be a few more spots up for grabs as opposed to last time. The bad news is I think mixed doubles is going to be the hardest um, tournament of the three to qualify a country for. Just because mixed doubles by its very nature is a lot more unpredictable. Upsets are a lot easier to come by. And some of the minority countries out there, like by minority, just means countries with small, small kind of curling bases, often do quite well in mixed doubles, right? So we saw Australia last year finish fourth. Hungary's been a perennial power in mixed doubles. So there'll be a lot more countries in the mix for getting points for mixed doubles. So it's not going to be easy to grab a spot there. I think the, the men's and women's game's a bit more predictable about who's going to qualify. Mixed doubles is going to be a lot more wild, I think. Good, and it'd be good to see some of those non-traditional curling powers qualify for mixed doubles because that was the whole reason that we started this tournament was to allow some of those countries the opportunity to compete because you know you only have to have one good men's and one good women's curler as opposed to putting together a four-person team so it'd be good to see a team like New Zealand or one of those uh, you know non-traditional powers qualify for the Olympics because I think we only had I think there was only one country that only qualified for mixed doubles um, at at the last Olympics, and I think it was Finland. Yeah, Finland qualified. 
So our final interview is with Olympic gold medalist, John Landsteiner. Uh, I chose to talk to him because as I'll say at the beginning of this interview, you know, no one ever talks to the lead. And that was one of the things that Jonathan actually asked me to do. He said, get somebody that, you know, isn't as well known. So you'll get to know John Landsteiner a bit. Uh, he was also very forthcoming about things that are going on behind the scenes with the top level players. Uh, he was very, it was very interesting to hear, you know, we've heard Brendan Botcher kind of talk about this on the Stone and Straw podcast, where he kind of mentioned in that interview that you might see these players try to unionize like you see in a lot of the other professional sports. And John alludes to those conversations having happening behind the scenes with the the top level curling players. So that will be interesting to watch. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if you have a similar situation that we saw in the mid two thousands, where you had the curlers, you know, not participate in provincials and in the briar, and instead focus on the slams. I wonder what the the next progression is as players try to get more of a piece of the television revenue pie from uh, from these events. So we'll get into that uh, right after this interview. So here is John Landsteiner. All right, we are in Raleigh, North Carolina for Curling Night in America with John Landsteiner. And John, one of the reasons I want to talk to you is no one ever talks to the lead, right? Uh, yeah, occasionally I get a little bit of attention, but uh, you know, generally it's the skip or uh, on our team, uh, Mr. Hamilton gets a lot of attention. So it's nice to be loved once in a while. <laughs> um, how has your life, what's the biggest change in your life since you guys won gold? Uh, in that first year, the biggest change was just less time away from home and less time away from work and, and having to adjust to more attention from, from the public, which is a great thing. And I think our team really embraced that. And um, we traveled quite a bit around the country. Some of us still are uh, really trying to promote the game and, um, you know, just sharing our experiences and, and getting to know curlers uh, around the USA. What was uh, your favorite experience that you had during that whole crazy post Pyeongchang period? Uh, that first week back, uh, we went to New York. I think that was one of our combined our, our favorite uh, time was was out there uh, with the outdoor hockey game, uh, getting to be on the Tonight Show, and uh, opening the stock market. We had a pretty fantastic week. Then, were you able to have a normal summer this year? This year, uh, yeah, I was actually. Uh, I only had a couple things that were out of the normal. Uh, otherwise, I got to get back in the office, and uh, my wife and I got a, a yellow lab puppy in May, so we've been enjoying that, and uh, it was it was nice to be home this summer. A uh, little bit of a difference compared to last year, right? A 180, yeah, totally different. <laughs> um, how did that affect you guys at the end of last season? Was there any fatigue from being go, go, go the whole time and not necessarily having a true off-season going into last year, and how does that compare the feeling coming into this season? Uh, honestly, um, I think we did get fatigued last year, but I think it was because we played so much. Uh, n you know, that summer before last season was weird, you know, out of the ordinary, but uh, we were so used to traveling that that really didn't bother us, I don't think. And we had a fresh team with Chris uh, being added. So the fatigue that we did have, I think, was just our season being middle of August through middle of May, which is absurd mm -hmm. compared to every other year that I've curled. 
Uh, no curling World Cup this year, so no trip to Beijing on the horizon, possibly in May. Like, how does it, how have you guys worked your schedule this year um, after what you experienced last year? Um, we worked it based on our ranking in the world a little bit, and uh, we were planning to be at quite a few of the Grand Slams, assuming that we qualify for them all. But uh, we, we have some fun trips planned this year. Uh, we got an invite to a Korea Spiel. Uh, so we're going to Yusong, and then we're going to Kurzawa, Japan, before Christmas. And we get to go back to uh, Scotland in January. So uh, we're looking forward to those trips and uh, getting to see something other than the tiny towns of Canada. Uh, one of the things I saw was with goal setting, obviously you guys have achieved incredible things in this sport but uh one of the things i heard going into last year was you guys still want to go out and win a slam you still want to go out and win a world is that kind of the motivation coming into this year yeah 100 percent um winning slams and, and winning the national championship and we want a medal at worlds or even win a world championship so uh you know you gotta you always have to keep those goals high and if you don't have goals you, you might you know why are you even out here um because if you have nothing to work for, you're probably going to get bored and tired of the game. So, you know, we, we came together as a team and made those goals and decided that we're going to go for them and as a foursome, and uh, so far, so good. Looking at this event, it's the first time that it's been outside of the Midwest. They've brought it to the South, and the stands are still packed. What does that say about how far curling has come in this country? I think it says a lot. Uh, you know, having the last year and a half, as we talked about traveling around the country, we've seen how curling has grown and how our Olympic uh, gold medal has changed the perception of the game everywhere. And, you know, to see, like, the Triangle Curling Club here going from, I was talking to one, one lady, going from 150 to now, like, 350 members, I mean, that's amazing. And uh, also the number of dedicated facilities growing exponentially is really exciting because... People that curl in the arenas, they don't. To me, they don't get the full experience. They they don't get the real game of curling. So, the more dedicated arenas that we have, the better everybody's going to get, and and the more fun they're going to have. I mean, how how do we get to that point? How do we keep the momentum um, that we've built coming off of what you guys accomplished at the Olympics? I think that answer is easy, and it's it's TV. Um, events like this are are going to be really big in keeping the game growing, uh, keeping the interest high. Um, and I know, like, with this event, they're, they're going to air it sporadically throughout the year. And I think that's really good to keep people seeing curling on TV but not have it all in one weekend and, and then it's gone kind of thing, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, if we can keep NBC on board for our, our nationals, potentially. I don't I think they only do the finals. Um, and maybe if they got more involved there and uh, maybe even pick up some of the Canadian broadcasting, you know, for the U.S. teams, I think that would be a, the next step. But... Uh, yeah, TV's definitely the, the driver of, of continuing growth. Maybe more so than any sport, change in this sport happens from the players. You know, there isn't really a governing body that sets the rules. A lot of times it's the players pushing for four rock, pushing for five rock, pushing for changes in thinking time. Is Do, do the players have to kind of band together and do that now with, with TV to kind of help the growth and development of the sport? Um, actually, that, that's something that's very, very um, highly talked about up in Canada. Uh, the, the fact that the players are the entertainment and um, the money is not increasing ever. And, you know, there might be a point where the players actually kind of rebel against that a little bit. And, uh, you know, it, 
NBC is making how much money for this thing, and and we're all taking our time away from home and our jobs. And um, I think I'm kind of going sideways here on this question, but um, yeah, what, what was the rest of it? <laughs> well, yeah, do do the players have to be the ones who put um, yeah. pressure on TV, on the TV partners, and on the federations themselves to kind of help? help the the progress of the sport in in the various countries i I do think that's the case but i also don't know that we really know how to do that effectively yet Mm -hmm. um we're just trying to hang on is what i feel like um and just play our game but uh you know i i wish there was more representation of the athletes kind of saying hey this needs to happen or that needs to happen uh to make more changes but um, you know, there's there's still a lot of people that don't play, that regulate a lot of rules and make up a lot of uh, of that stuff. So um, there's definitely definitely two sides to to every story, and that's one of them. And uh, hopefully, in the coming future, here we can the athletes can maybe jump ahead a little bit. How much longer do you think you have in the sport? If I want to, I could probably continue where I'm at for. At least another like twelve years, but uh, you know, I personally have been having some issues with my my arm and mm-hmm. and shoulder. So uh, working on that with with therapy, and uh, I think you can be pretty competitive through the age of forty. But the game's younger now than it ever has been. So um, keeping physically prepared uh, to play as many games as we do is is the challenge. And it's getting tougher on leads, right? The five rock hasn't exactly made your job easier. <laughs> No, not really, uh, but it makes it more fun. Uh, one thing that, that you might hear around is that leads can't win games, but they can lose games. So you got to kind of take that to heart as, as a lead and, and know that your position is important and, uh, you know, try to play your best every time you get out there. All right, uh, anything else you want to add before we get out of here? No, I guess just that, uh, you know, they did a great job down here in North Carolina uh, setting the event up and, um, a little too hot for me the first few days, but uh, we've had some incredible food and, and suggestions of restaurants to go to, so I did very, very good hospitality. All right, good deal. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. All right, so that's really interesting. I, I, like you said before, the, there's history of this in curling, right? In the early, late 90s, early 2000s, a big fight in Canadian curling, at least, was over sponsorship money at the Briar. And so it was the men's teams that... Essentially, they didn't. They just boycott. They decided to boycott the buyer for two years, and that's actually when the slams got set up. And so they they tried to get the top eighteen teams on the men's side. They didn't get all of them. There were some very famous people who refused to boycott. So Russ Howard, Randy Furby was kind of the most famous of the of that lot. John Morris was kind of just out of juniors and didn't want to participate in the boycott. And but uh, a lot of the kind of more established teams on tour did, and they went and set up their own events and got a deal uh, with Sportsnet initially. Now, the story there's a bit... I know know the players definitely obviously want money. (laughs) Makes sense. They're trying to do it for a career. uh, And nothing wrong with that. I'm not convinced that there's that much money to be had. Uh, So we've spoken about this before in the past that um, there's an interesting question of whether or not competitive professional curling is financially sustainable. 
One of the kind of little blips in history that's forgotten about is that the Slams were re- originally owned by a sports marketing group, and they almost went bankrupt around 2009-2010, and Sportsnet bought the property, so to speak, and has basically been bankrolling the events ever since. The players actually still have to pay an entry fee to enter the Slams. They've got to win a game to break even. And so even there, the, the kind of prize purse is largely still funded by the players, at least partially um, contributing money. I don't, because like how teams work is a bit opaque, um, it's not clear how much teams are making from prize winnings versus how much they're making from other sources of income like sponsorship or putting on camps. But, you know, at times I've spoken to teams that are on kind of the high, higher, you know, the top 20 teams a little bit about it, even if they're circumspect about exactly where all their money comes from. I think outside of like the top five or six teams in the world, curling's basically still a money losing prospect. Right, most teams that are kind of gunning for it, they either have to have a major backer. So in Europe, that's a national governing body, or they have to have kind of a large sponsor. So if they're in Canada, they're one of the big name teams. They probably get enough off sponsorship to to cover their costs. Or to be blunt, they actually have to have deep pockets. They actually have to come from a, come a family with money or have some money on their own to help bankroll it. Um, so. I'm still a bit of a skeptic that there's that much money out there to be had. Certainly, they're on TV and there's money being made, but I my hunch is that um, there's not as much money as the players think there is. I kind of I tend to agree with you, um, and I think I think we're starting. I think we're going to start to see that. Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the sponsorships. It seems like the team sponsors, there's a, there's a previous relationship there. Like it's the, it's the employer of one of, of one of the, of one of the people on the team. Yeah. It's either, you know, it's either a family business, like weed man is kind of the classic one with Brent Lang. Uh, or I mean, there are, there are legitimate or, uh, you know, um, I'm trying to think, but back when Kevin Martin was touring, he had a kind of a pretty large financial backer there as well. I think if you are a top five team where you kind of are at least a a known name in the curling world, you're bankable for making the playoffs basically every slam. You're a good shot to represent it kind of all the TV events. So if you're that tier, and that's really top five, if we're being honest about it, you're definitely going to get enough sponsorship money to kind of back your season and, uh, you know, hopefully kind of make a little bit of profit, right? And then hopefully your winnings also contribute a little bit as well. But honestly, if you drop outside the top 10 even, I think it very quickly becomes break even. And once you're outside the top 20, unless you have somebody bankrolling you, uh, it's pretty, pretty tough to to make a lot of money in the season, right? And if you just look at the money list for the year, yeah, obviously the top five, 10 teams, they're breaking, you know, hundred to $150,000. But if you divide that up by four, that pretty quickly kind of cuts into the winnings there. And then if you kind of add in what the actual costs are for flying around the world now to kind of go hit all these events, it again kind of cuts into uh, that profit margin pretty quickly too. Uh, the flip side is I don't really know, you know, how much money there is in these events either. Most WCT events that aren't slams are essentially paid for out of the 
the registration fees. That's where the prize purse comes from. Maybe a little bit of sponsorship money kicked in in some of the larger events to help top up the prize purse and attract some teams. Occasionally, um, organizers of some of these events will pay an appearance fee to get a couple of name teams into the field to kind of strengthen the field a little bit. So maybe, again, if you're in that top five to ten spot, you might be able to get a bit of your your um, your cost of participating underwritten. But it's not it's not like we're going to be seeing million-dollar curlers no. anytime soon. <laughs> I don't know, or ever. But uh... Yeah. So I, you know, one thing that's interesting is I don't know how much – a gold medal in curling's worth, right? I think in Canada, if you've got a gold medal, you can parlay it in a lot of different ways, right? So Kevin Martin or, uh, you know, who else won a gold medal in Canada? Caitlin Laws or John Morris, right? They, they can kind of do a lot of other side hustles based off the prestige of that gold medal that they probably can curl uh, and make enough money from the curling-related activities that they don't have to worry about um, other sources of income. So, you know, but they're still probably making a middle-class lifestyle. There's definitely not going to be on, you know, there's not going to be a WCT Cribs anytime soon. One of the ways that they can potentially increase the prize pool is by getting more events on American television, um, which was something Rick and John touched on as ways to keep the momentum going here in the States. And I think Curling Night in America is a big part of that, even though it is a event that is that is taped and then aired later. I think getting more events on TV is the next step. And we almost got there with the Curling World Cup. Um, NBC has this property in the Olympic Channel that needs content. And NBC seems willing to include live curling in that content. Overall, I feel like there's been more buy-in from NBC since the Olympics. You saw the Curling World Cup on TV. You have Curling Night in America, now the Sticks and Stones um, event, getting more airtime on NBCSN, even though they are taped events. But TV coverage is going to be critical for creating more curling fans and hopefully more curlers in the U.S. And I'm actually kind of optimistic about the way things are going, and uh, this event in Raleigh was a big part of that. Yeah, right, and I agree. That's a good point. Uh, especially, we, we talked about this before. Obviously, curling that in America is not really targeted at the hardcore curling fans such as ourselves. It's a bit more of a, a package that promotes the game for people who aren't so familiar with it. But even having that on TV is tremendous growth. Uh, I think when I was living in the U.S. with you, there there was very very little curling TV coverage at all. I think they one year. Uh, managed to get the final of the USA Nationals on TV on uh, Embassy Sports. Uh, and so the fact that things like the Nationals, the Trials, Curling Night in America are all being picked up regularly by NBC Sports, the fact that it's possible through the ESPN app to watch some of the slams and some of the other events from TSN uh, is definitely a good development. And I think you're exactly right. Rick kind of hinted at it a bit in his interview. Uh, it'd be really great to see some top-level cash spiel, slam level, or if USA Curling could put on their own variation of it, that would be fantastic too. And if it does take off in the U.S. market, then definitely there'll be a lot more money there because the TV, U.S. TV market's obviously 10 times the size of Canada. So hopefully events like Curling Net in America are kind of steps in the right direction towards growing the game through getting more high-profile events on TV in the U.S. when it's not an Olympic year. All right. So again, thank you to everyone who 
kind of helped us out behind the scenes at Curling Night in America, especially Terry Davis, Rick Patsky, uh, even Price Atkinson, uh, who was there helping out as the MC for the event and doing a lot of social media stuff there. It was great to meet. Uh, it was great to meet him. Uh, make sure that you listen to the podcast that he does with 12th End Sports Network called the Extra Extra End, but it was great to finally get a chance to meet Price in person. So it was a lot of fun. Glad that that event came to Raleigh. Hopefully we'll get more USA curling events uh, within driving range uh, for me. Um, and it's good to see that event is actually heading out to Anaheim next year. So again, it sounds like they're now going to start taking Curling Night in America and putting it in some non-traditional markets. We saw it in the Twin Cities and in Eveleth and Duluth before, but now uh, now they're going to take that take that event to some uh, some non-traditional uh, spots for curling, which I think is exactly what that event is kind of is kind of meant to do. So. It'll be fun to watch that. Uh, watch for me, and I'll I'll say on Twitter when to watch for me for some of those uh, some of those games that are going to be aired on NBC Sports Network, and then also looking forward to the Sticks and Stones event that'll air this spring. So, thank you again, and we'll be back. Uh, I think next week we're going to air the other interviews that I did, which was with uh, Trevor Gal from Triangle Curling Club, Joel Retornas from Italy and J.D. Lind, the coach of Team Japan. So watch for that very soon. We'll take you around the world on growth and development from interviews that I got in Raleigh. So thank you for listening. Uh, if you'd like, please uh, remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. Uh, if you want to uh, respond to anything that we said here, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. And we are also on Facebook and Instagram at Rocks Across the Pond. So uh, thank you again, and we'll talk to you all again real soon.